It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a fantastic Wednesday morning show for you today, including at the bottom of this hour, cops in the classroom. Now, the Vancouver Police Department's school liaison program under fire from activists, including the defund the police movement. They want police officers out of Vancouver schools. The president of the BC Teachers Union was on Simi's show this morning. She had some negative things to say about this program. They are reviewing it. The Vancouver School Board, meanwhile, set to vote on this soon. They have placed this program under review. Could Vancouver police officers be kicked out of Vancouver schools? We've got an awesome panel on that coming up at the bottom of this hour both sides of it for you and your opportunity to have your say on the open line so that'll be great that's coming up at the bottom of the hour we got all that and lots more on the show today but we start first with yesterday's wild interview here on the show with andrew weaver the former leader of the bc green party who has now emerged as a critic of bike lanes very critical of bike lanes including the stanley park bike lane very critical of the cycling movement in the city now have a listen to this now here is andrew weaver here yesterday going after cycling advocates because if you raise an opinion you're suddenly demonized as you know satan reincarnated because somehow you dare challenge the the high priests of this uh, kind of uh, uh, cult uh, okay, i was waiting for you to say it i was waiting for you to say it to say the to say oh. the cult word you okay. call them a cult why do you call them a cult well I, I tried to build it in terms of a metaphor and i don't know that it was very good Okay, as Andrew Weaver on the show yesterday, he went on to say a lot more about bike lanes. Okay, let's get the response now from the current leader of the BC Green Party, Sonia Firstenau, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Sonia, thank you very much for coming on. Mm, Happy to be here, Mike. Okay, what do you think about your predecessor here, Andrew Weaver, going after bike lanes and being very critical here of cycling advocates? Well, I just think in general that... um, the the way that we approach discourse on any topic, really, um, any kind of <laughs> controversy or topic, that those of us who have elected office or been in elected office, really, it, it's kind of incumbent on us to try to raise the bar of discourse. And we've seen how, uh, for example, the former president of the United States uh, chose to go a very opposite route and uh, express himself in ways that, you know, was quite jarring to see for a president. Well, you're, you're, comp- you're comparing Andrew Weaver to Donald Trump now? No, I'm just talking about the, the discourse, the way that we approach discourse. And I think yeah. that name-calling, stereotyping, lumping people into groups is, is not helpful to the conversations that we need to have around, you know, crucial questions like how do we organize our cities? How do we create better... Uh, diverse mobility options? How do we ensure that we are, uh, you know, adapting to the changes that people want to see, but also learning from any kinds of 
um, challenges or mistakes or any of that. But once we get into a discourse that's very polarizing and name-calling, it's hard to have the conversations that are actually productive. Okay, he was very critical of several bike lane projects on the show today or yesterday, very notably the Stanley Park bike lane, which has been controversial in the city. And I would just note that that is a bike lane project that is supported by the Green Party mm-hmm. of Vancouver. The uh, the commissioners on the Vancouver Park Board, members of the Green Party, uh, solidly behind that bike lane. So here you've mm-hmm. got the former leader of the provincial party here coming out. Like, is he? Would you say he is offside with Green Party policy here? You know, I, I mean, this is the tricky thing of weighing into other jurisdictions. I think that there's been a lot of yeah. consultation that's happened. There's been a lot of reviewing and reporting. I know that there was a significant survey that was done about that. And changes are going to result in, in people not being happy with the change. That's that's an inevitable outcome. And then it's up to decision makers to respond to feedback or criticism and identify ways to, to adjust if necessary, right? But um, you know, I really think that it it's important how we approach these conversations. We know, for example, that there has been a huge uptick in cycling since the pandemic and a huge uptick also in uh, visiting to parks all over the province. People are spending more time outside. This is a good thing, right? It's good for our health. It's good for our well-being. Right. It's good that people are getting outside, spending time in nature. We know that that has positive mental health impacts and so looking at it through uh, a number of lenses and saying okay if we all agree fundamentally that we want healthier communities with access to cycling and walking and and access for people with mobility issues let's work together to achieve those outcomes okay well i guess that's one of the points he's been critical of though i think his his argument is that some of these projects have been forced through over the objections of people with disabilities for example like the park board's own advisory board or committee uh representing the views of people with disabilities were against this project and and they put it through anyway but let me play another clip here for you from andrew weaver here on yesterday's show here he is always argued that what we need is proper integrated active transportation right but the, the, what's what's very most unfortunate mike is that um with with many in this community you simply cannot have an opinion yeah, so I, he's. I guess the point he's making is that he's not against bike lanes in in principle, but he feels that some of these projects have just been sort of forced through over the objections of people. And if you dare to criticize them, uh, then you, they won't listen to reason. The other side. Your thoughts? Well, I guess the 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 fascinating thing of anecdotal evidence. Um, you know, if four or five people or ten people uh, respond to comments um does that mean that you can't have an opinion i mean i think it's how we express opinions that matters it's how we engage i'm i'm standing here looking out at humboldt right now with the um the you know i know that this was something that he commented on right um what i see typically on this road is is um cars going very slowly and i think that we can agree and there's a lot of studies about this that show that you know, slowing down vehicle traffic in urban areas is a good thing. Um, You're far less likely to be killed if you're hit by a car going 30 than you are hit by a car going 50. So there's, you know, there's there's a lot of data, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of 
work that goes into urban planning. And yes, I can absolutely recognize that, uh, you know, when changes happen, they can be very disruptive and, and challenging. Yeah. And it is then up to the elected people to to uh, hear that feedback and right. to to respond to it. Okay, I guess the point I guess he's making is that there are people in, in opposition to the Stanley Park uh, bike lane, for example, the, the local businesses that have been impacted, that people with disabilities, and, and he says that they haven't been accommodated. But let me play another clip here for you from Andrew Weaver again yesterday on yesterday's show, and here he is specifically talking about Stanley Park. You know, we take Stanley Park. This is not yeah. an issue about climate change, right? It's not climate change. That, that circular route has got nothing to do with commuting it's about people who like to go biking and that's fine have that discussion but don't evoke climate change as the reason why you want to do something yeah so he's talking there about the uh, the proponents and supporters of the stanley park bike lane saying like this is good for climate change if we can get people on bikes we're going to we're going to help save the planet from climate change but there's been other evidence that well actually when you take out a lane of traffic you create a lot of idling backed up cars traffic jams and maybe that's even worse for the planet but your thoughts yeah, I mean, I think taking one one aspect of uh, changing um, transportation patterns and then ascribing that to whether or not it's going to affect climate change is probably not the right approach. I think we look at, uh, you know, overall patterns of transportation. We know, for example, in my own community, Calicton, that, that transportation accounts for 70% of greenhouse gases in Calicton, of the emissions that we, we have for that region. So, Clearly, that's somewhere that, you know, we want to focus on as being an area to look at reducing our emissions. Do you, do you have, um, like, what is your relationship like with Weaver these days? Like, you guys on the outs here now? <laughs> so, uh, he's no longer a member of the party, and, and uh, we're focused on, on the work we're doing uh, in our caucus and in our organization. Right, but would you say this is unhelpful for him to be speaking out on an issue like this, from I, your perspective? I, he can speak to whatever he likes you know he's a he's a, a citizen what i think is is essential for um ideally for elected people and formerly elected people is is to recognize that we do have bigger voices uh and that it's important that we use our voices to create right um space for discourse that is actually healthy and productive and inclusive and isn't divisive and, you know, resorting to stereotyping and name-calling. Okay. Sonia, first to know, thank you for being on the show today. appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Mike. I got a little uh, disagreement going on there in the Green family here over bike lanes. Certainly the former leader, Green, uh, Andrew Weaver, speaking out about bike lanes and the cycling cult, as he called it yesterday on the show. Wow, a lot of people talking about that. Let's go right to your phone calls here and see what you think about it now. Dan on the island. Hey, Dan. Yeah, I um, agree with Mr. Weaver. You can't even have a public discussion about anything. Uh, without being insulted and called a denier, uh, e- everything is climate change. Like uh, every every single thing is climate change, and uh, like you know, and the bike lanes in particular. I don't know if you've seen what's going on in Victoria, but yeah. it, it's an accident waiting to happen. My elderly mother, uh, you know, as in, you know, she, she drove up one of those roads and she had to pull over and call me. She was so nervous. There's no lines there. It's yeah. It's a free. It's a free for all. And 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 
and and and the one thing, I, the other thing I want to say, and I, I please, yeah. I, I don't, don't downplay this point, but, but cyclists seem to think they they don't have to abide by the rules of the road. They go through stop signs. They they don't yield. They'll. Uh, you know, so if they cause an accident, how, how does the police ticket a biker? Do they okay. have insurance? Okay. Maybe they get- thank, thank you, Dan. Well, uh, we do occasionally see cyclists get get ticketed, but I, I take your point about the, and this is the point that Weaver made yesterday too. He's saying, like, look, I'm not against bike lanes. What I am against is them being rammed through over widespread public objection, and you don't have a reasonable discussion about it i mean that, that that's why he was calling it a, a cult uh yesterday on the show betty in vancouver hi 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 there how are you i'm good what would you like to say well i'm against the bike lane in stanley park i've worked right. there for over 30 years for one of the restaurants wow i've seen how the cyclists last year when they had their own bike lanes they're going faster than the posted speed they're going faster than cars they're weaving out of their bike lanes to get us, you know, into a faster lane because people are trying to enjoy a ride through the park. And I've seen we have to call ambulances because they wipe out, they break their arms, they don't stop for pedestrians where me as a driver, I stop for the pedestrians when they're at the crosswalk. They don't. They sail right past them and I've had no problem sharing the lanes with the cyclists. Yeah. It's them that don't want to share anything with the drivers. How's, uh, how's business at the restaurant? Um, right now, we are closed. So yeah. we have, like, probably 100 people out of work. Do you, think the bike, can, do you think the bike lanes make it worse for business? Yes, because yeah. they took away our parking. How yeah, are right. people supposed to park and enter the restaurant they don't want to go through the park again because there's no parking okay betty thanks for the call appreciate that benita on the line in errington hi uh, uh, good morning mike thanks hi. for taking my call sure. um i'm a little I'm, I'm an avid cyclist have been for many many years and i'm a little bit disappointed in andrew reaver's comment um regarding that we are a cult uh i thought he would keep it secret because we are a cult. We like to eat babies. We eat babies. And um, we, before we go on our rides, we crank up the Queen song, I Want to Ride My Bicycle. <laughs> okay. okay. Okay, Vanita. Thank you for that. The secret, I guess, is out. John and Ladner. Hey, John. Hi. Hi. I'm a bicyclist myself, but... I didn't see any reason in doing the bike lane because there are so many trails through the park. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Get the people out into those trails, off the road. As a bicyclist, I tried to avoid the roads where the cars are on because I don't want to suck exhaust. Okay, John, thanks for the call. I think the most, you know, the most compelling argument against it to me is from people with disabilities who have argued quite forcefully, I think convincingly, about... Uh, the impact on their access to the park because of the bike lane. Let's go to Laura in Vancouver. Just got a minute left. Hey, Laura. Hi, thanks. I I agree with uh, Andrew. I don't think he was slamming all bike lanes, but he was saying the Stanley Park, keep it open for everyone. It's not for the elite that can get on a bike. I can't jump on a bike and ride it, but I want to enjoy the park, the park that my taxes have paid for all my life. Thank you very much for the call. Let's squeeze in one more real quick. E, uh, Yvonne, but you got to go quick, okay? Yep. Um, my husband and I use 
Stanley Park lots last year, and our biggest complaint is there's no rules for the cyclists. They fly by you on the seawall last year where they weren't even supposed to be last year. They don't say coming up on your left, coming up on your okay. right. Okay, everyone, thank Thank, thank you for calling. I hate to step on you there. Out of time. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about cops in the classroom in Vancouver now, and specifically the student liaison officer program that's been around in Vancouver schools since uh, the since the seventies. This program's been around for fifteen years. It includes fifteen police officers from the Vancouver Police Department who spend time in BC schools. Some people would like to see uh, this program uh, shut down. Uh, get police officers out of Vancouver schools. Others say it's doing a great work for students and the school system. Let's discuss now. Got both sides of it for you. Mark Heal Simpson on the line with the BC Community Alliance, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Mark Heal, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Doug Spencer. He's retired uh, from the Vancouver Police Department. He was there for 30 years. He was a gang expert. He now works to keep kids out of gangs. Doug, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for both being here. Mark Hill, let me go to you first. Give me your take on this program. You think it should be shut down, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I believe. Why is that? Well, the program violates the VSB's Access Without Fear policy, um, and it's also actively doing harm to students and contributing to feelings of uh, lack of safety for specifically black and indigenous students. And so I think that if students are actively being harmed and don't feel safe and a program is violating um, the DSP's policies, that those are grounds for it to be ended. Okay, that's the precise opposite of the goals of the program. So, so Mark Hill, you're a black Canadian, right? So I know you're an anti-racism advocate. Uh, so why do you think like a, a black kid or an indigenous kid would would feel that way about this program? Well, because of, not only because of the representation in the media and the exposure that they see, even just a couple weeks ago, where young Indigenous um, youth were being harmed by police officers, thrown to the ground, pulled by their hair, and uh, assaulted. But actually, if you listen to the VSB meetings from a couple weeks ago, there were accounts told where there was harm being done, where students were being assaulted by SLO officers. And so when people witness that, when people experience that, they know that something's wrong and they don't feel safe and they're not safe and they're being harmed. So, yeah. Let me go to Doug Spencer and get his response to that. Doug, what do you think? Yeah, it's the polar opposite. Um, The police are there to keep the kids safe. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Everybody's talking sure. about ending the program. The uh, Back in 97 to 99, they brought in a chief for back east, uh, Bruce Chambers, and he stopped the SLO program. I was in the gang unit at the time, and the assaults in schools went from about six or eight assaults a month to 60. And I had to go and investigate some really serious assaults with bats and all sorts of stuff. Kids were getting bullied. Um, It's just a complete disaster to stop that program. The kids, there's kids with drug addiction issues. There's kids getting exploited. There's kids uh, getting recruited in gangs. Uh, That's back in the day when I was in the gang unit. The SLO program runs all these uh, 
police cadet programs. And, you know, the uh, BIPOC kids are completely included in that, right? And yeah. a lot of those kids, uh, uh, South Asian, uh, black kids, uh, indigenous kids of color, they're in that program, and a number of them have gone from that program to become police officers and make okay, PD more diverse. Okay, let me ask Mark Heal about that, because, uh, you know, I'm looking at some statistics from the from the program, Mark Heal, so we're looking at 15 officers uh, assigned to this. Uh, more than half of them are uh, women or people of color. Uh, some speak several languages. So, I don't know, like, wouldn't that wouldn't that be inspiring in some cases? Like if you have a, a black kid in school and the, and that kid sees a black police officer, wouldn't that be uh, positive? Uh, no, I think that that minimizes the actual relationship that the black and indigenous communities have with police. It isn't necessarily the skin color of a police officer that's going to um, make them more safe. And I'd really like to push back on the point raised by the other guests sure, around go ahead. Yeah. police being there to protect students. That is 100% not the purpose of the SLO program. And that's what it says in the memorandum of understanding between the VSB and the BPD. They're there to educate students, etc. but they're not actually there to be patrolling, to be the first point of contact for safety. And that is where we're starting to see them move away from the mandate of the program into now more of a police state and school. And what you, okay, it, Doug, what, what do you they can, yeah. what they can do there, too, is um, Doug mentioned like people with drug addiction and other things. Well, there's other socio uh, socioeconomic factors as well. Um, and it, what it does is it feeds into the school to prison pipeline, but it could also have an impact on whether a, a student's going to get to stay with their family. That's something that we heard um, as a testimony to the BSB. Okay, let me get. It ends up playing into the social services as well. Let me get Doug's res- Doug's response to that. So, so are these police officers when they're when they go into a school? Doug, are they there to educate kids, or are they there to actually be on like patrol and, and you know? Well, they certainly pick up the that baton, right? Somebody's got to teach them about the truth of gangs and drugs, all these things that they're susceptible to, and getting kids trying to recruit them and stuff. You know, I do that at Odd Squad. I go and talk to schools. Last year, I talked to 45 different schools all over the Lower Mainland because it's a Lower Mainland problem, the gangs, right? And it's certainly not just kids of color. You know, the the, the media sometimes will purport, yeah, it's all uh, black kids or East Indian kids and stuff. It, it's not. It's multicultural. It's just kids making bad choices. So, yes, they're there to educate but while you're there, you can't turn your back. If a kid comes into your office and says, hey, I'm getting sexually abused at home, what are you going to do? A teacher can't deal with that stuff. Okay, right? so stuff just, you know, stuff naturally comes up. Mark Hill, what do you say to that? Well, students are actually saying that they'd rather be reporting those types of incidences to counselors, and they'd rather get legal advice from paralegals, and they'd rather have extracurricular activities with private citizens not with armed uh, and uh, not armed officers in uniform so uh, there are legitimate alternatives to the program and again um, one point that um, Doug hasn't responded to is the fact that students have been harmed by police in schools 
and multiple times. And so we can't put that. You mean like police? Margin. You mean like police officers who go into the schools under this program end up hurting a kid? Yes, that's what I mean. Okay, well, I'm looking at the stats that they've released, and they say this program sent between 2014 to 2019, so five year period here, twenty four thousand documented interactions with with kids in the school system and about one one percent of those interactions led to some sort of criminal justice activity so that sounds like a pretty low percentage but your thoughts uh i I don't have really any comments to that number but what isn't in those facts is the fact that students are being harmed and assaulted by police officers doug what do you say doug what do you say to that yeah, it's really difficult when you're dealing with that many incidents. And I can tell you the police interact with people and youth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times every year. And yes, yeah, sometimes, very rarely, 1% is you go to any business out in the business world and if there's 1% mistakes, that's pretty good. Um, but, you know, unfortunately it happens when you if you're dealing with a kid that may be high on dope or he's going to be going to jail because he assaulted somebody else or shot somebody, they don't want to go to jail. You're going to have to use enough forces as necessary to arrest them and take them to jail. People will get hurt. Like self physical fighting with people. It's not an exact science, right? Even the most expert people, and all sorts of self-defense, people will get hurt. If they're fighting back, it's unfortunate, right? And no policeman wants to fight anybody, I'll tell you right now. Mark Hill, what do you say to that? And then we'll take a quick break and take a couple of phone calls. Your thoughts? Sure. Um, Well, I I don't think that it's breaking up fights and whatnot from what I've heard from students who are being harmed. It seems to be kind of over-policing and being targeted by the police which is leading to the escalations and and leading to the harm. So it's really important that we center those voices. And if even if it was 1% of students have been harmed by police in schools and are experienced and don't feel safe, I think that that's legitimate cause for concern for elected trustees. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue the debate about cops in the classroom in Vancouver. The Vancouver Police Department's uh, school liaison program under fire here. Some people want it uh, shut down. We've got both sides of it here for you right now. Mark Hill Simpson, BC Community Alliance, he thinks the program should be taken out of BC uh, Vancouver schools. Doug Spencer, a former 30-year police officer. Your phone calls now. Let's go right to them. Karen and Surrey. Hey, Karen. Uh, good morning. I, first of all, I think that this uh, move to remove SLOs is so counterproductive. I personally work, I run Surrey Crime Prevention, we work with youth from Vancouver, from all over the Lower Mainland in a mentorship program, in partnership with police, and I've seen remarkable work being done. I can give you two examples. There's a sergeant with Vancouver Police who worked with a young uh, uh, black student in the school system in Vancouver, and she's LGBTQ. She was able to liaise with this youth and mentor him, and he led the first BLM march in Vancouver with the support of this officer. He felt so comfortable with her. He reached out to her during the first march and uh, helped coordinate it with her support. That's one example of many. I know officers that have gone above and beyond outside their regular work hours 
fundraising, giving up time from their families to support youth who are in crisis. This move is ridiculous. I don't see how a school district can take on a budgetary level like this to introduce counsel. It's not going to work. And the police that are in the schools right now are not, 1% is a pretty remarkable number. And when you think about the gang escalation in the lower mainland and the the, uh, recruitment of young women into the uh, sex trade from our schools to have remove the officers and give them a voice, uh, give them a place where these kids could go and speak to these officers safely is just ridiculous. I'm a parent. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for a a great call. Mark Heal, what do you say to her? Um, I'd say that it's it's always positive when people have uh, positive role models in schools. And I believe that as private citizens, we can also do that. I myself have volunteered for, uh, over five years going back to schools and coaching and, and mentoring students in inner cities as well. And well, what, so what about the example that she just cited, though, of a police officer who had an extremely positive experience on a, on a black kid? Well, that, I, I have a career as well, and I can still have a positive impact on a child. And there's other, there's other areas, other major cities like Toronto, who are getting rid of this program because it's actively doing harm. And what we're putting to the margin in this conversation is the harm that's being done. And the problem is, is that there's a minority of students being affected. And so when we hear all of the opinions of other people who have these positive experiences, it drowns out their voices. Doug Spencer, Doug Spencer, what do you say to that? Yeah. I mean, you can just go, go on YouTube and look up beyond measure. It's the VPD social school liaison unit. You it's self-explanatory why these officers do this, right? Yeah. They, we come on the job to help people, to serve and protect, um, to take that program out of the schools. You're throwing away a lifeline for a large number of kids. Okay, let's get another potential. another call in here. Spencer on the line in North Delta. We just got a, a couple minutes left. Go ahead, Spencer. Hey, I just got to say, you got to be careful when you talk to uh, students about the school liaison program. I mean, I was in high school just two years ago, and I got to say, I wasn't a fan of the liaison because, you know, you're out there sitting around smoking and drinking and whatever, and the liaisons aren't going to be a big fan of that. But I understand their purpose. And uh, to that note, you're saying that, uh, you know, they, they police have are having bad interactions with students, and you're saying they can have, fix it with counselors. And uh, so you're saying right. that... Teachers and counselors have zero problems with students. My brother, he was a uh, problem student, and he had a horrible time dealing with, uh, you know, some counselors. They never tried to help him. They just tried to kick him out. And, uh, you know, it's okay. just, he didn't have a uh, small percentage of problems with okay. uh, teachers and counselors as well. Thanks for the call. Mark Hill. Yeah, um, that's the recommendation that we're hearing from students in school today, is that they would like alternative ways to have intervention where they feel safe and they feel comfortable. Um, it's unfortunate to hear that there's been negative experiences at any point, but that is what we're hearing from people in schools today who are being negatively impacted is that they would like alternatives. Okay, let's squeeze in one more call. Ross in Coquitlam. Ross, you got to go quick. Go ahead. Hi, I'm retired principal actually in the Coquitlam School District, and I was in the job when police liaison first started to come on. Now, this isn't Vancouver Police, but I'm sure it's similar across the board. It was outstanding. The experience that that I had, first of all, they chose 
very good officers for those positions. They related well with kids. Uh, We developed the relationship between the school community and the police community. Um, You know, violence at school dances and things like that just disappeared. I mean, it was was 100%. I'm I'm totally 100% in favor of it. Thank you, Ross, for the call. Guys, we're out of time. We could have done a lot more on this, and we'll just have to have you back because there are so many calls that did not make it on the air. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the long-running legal case now against Helmut Oberlander, a 97-year-old man. He lives in Ontario. He has been called Canada's last Nazi. He came to Canada in the 1950s, and he's been fighting deportation ever since his past was revealed in 1995, how he had worked as an interpreter for the Einsatzgruppen, which is one of the Nazis' most brutal killing squads in the Second World War. This case now continuing in court. His lawyer last week filed a motion in federal court asking that immigration proceedings against his client be put on hold permanently. The lawyer says he's 97 years old, he is partially deaf, cannot understand fully the case against him. This fight to deport him has been going on literally for decades. It's very concerning to many people, including, of course, the Jewish community in Canada. Have a listen to this now. This is uh, Canadian Rabbi Haim Danzinger speaking about this case. For us, that's painful. To this day, we, we, it, it, it's shocking that, that there is still someone involved. Because if you think about it, so few people are alive from, from immediate relatives right after so many years. So the thought that someone is still alive, living freely, and was not held accountable for what he did, that's, that's, a, that's a scary thought. Okay, Rabbi Heim Danzinger there commenting to the CBC about the case of Helmut Oberlander, called by some as Canada's last Nazi. Okay, let's discuss now. What a great guest I've got for you. Stephen Rambam, he is a private investigator who has spent a good part of his career hunting down former Nazis. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Mr. Rambam, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, when you hear this name, Helmut Oberlander, and, and the past, this guy's secret past that was not revealed until the 90s, he, he was an interpreter with this uh, Nazi killing squad called the Einsatzgruppen. What can you tell me about that, this Nazi squad? Who, what, what were they all about? Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but I want to correct one error. Um, 
Helmut Oberlander was known far earlier than 1995. Canada knew who he was. The Jewish community knew who he was. And uh, not just Helmut Oberlander, by the way, but literally hundreds of other war criminals that came to Canada. Uh, hmm. One of the first cases that I did was in your area, uh, in Hope, British Columbia, a, uh, a uh, police chief who had coordinated the murder of 5,000 civilians, uh, over 1,000 of them children. And he was known since 1947. Uh, so th- this is not news to anybody. Uh, what what is news is how little was done. But as far as the the Einsatzkommando, they were mobile killing units. They went into uh, territories uh, along with the with the Nazi troops. They rounded up uh, Jews, uh, communists, uh, basically anybody who didn't. Uh, uh, meet the standards of of the Ar- of the Aryans and executed them. They used mobile killing trucks, where the exhaust was routed into the back of the truck, uh, sealed van. Uh, people would be packed in there, entire communities packed into these trucks in the trip to uh, a ditch that had been dug or just a field where the bodies would be dumped. Uh, these trucks would would drive slowly, make sure that everyone inside was dead or close to dead, and would dump them in the uh, in the ditches. Some of the people were buried alive. Uh, they were also uh, uh, many killings by uh, by firing squads, by people being beaten to death. Uh, some people were uh, uh, killed by multiple stab wounds. Uh, This was the so-called Holocaust by bullets, and of the 6 million Jews that were killed, 2 million of them uh, were killed by hands-on murder, Uh, not not the the semi-antiseptic gas chambers and and crematoria, not that those were, you know, morally or, or functionally any better. Yeah. But two million of the Jews were killed by people uh, killing them hands-on. Uh, the interesting part is the hands-on murderers uh, disproportionately came to Canada. Members wow. of the Arais Commando, members of the Lithuanian units, uh, the Ukrainian SS battalions, uh, the Hungarian Arrow Cross. These were these were all uh, indigenous anti-Semitic fascists. And uh, when the Nazis came into their countries, they gleefully joined up, uh, murdered their Jewish neighbors, uh, looted their their Jewish neighbors' homes. And uh, by the time the Nazis passed through, uh, there were no Jews left or functionally no Jews left. Uh, In Latvia, 95% of the Jews were killed. In Lithuania, it was 90-plus percent, and that was pretty representative of all the countries. It's absolutely horrifying. And when we think about this guy, Helmut Oberlander, uh, had come to the Canada in the 19, the 1950s, 97 years old. Canada, 
Canada have been trying for decades, Stephen, to, to deport this guy. They've tried stripping him of his Canadian citizenship, which has been overturned back and forth several times through, through legal actions. What do you think about it? just seems kind of crazy that this goes on for like literally decades. What do you think of Canada's, Canada's record here uh, when it comes to uh, former Nazis who came into the country? Look, uh, <laughs> there's so many things that could be said. First of all, you know Helmut Oberlander's name uh, in large part because he was one of a handful, and I mean literally a handful, less than 10 uh, Nazi war criminals that Canada actually decided to put up the pretense of going after. Uh, there were well over a 1,000 uh, Nazi war criminals that came to Canada. I, I personally identified approximately 200 of them, located over 170 of them, and I actually knocked on the door and interviewed over 70 of them. So I, I, I know from personal investigative experience what I'm talking about. There were over 1,000 of the worst of the worst Nazi war criminals that came into Canada were admitted into Canada. I will say this is this is uh, within memory of when the Jews were not allowed into Canada. Uh, uh, Jews who were desperately begging for for a way to escape the Holocaust. But after after the Holocaust was over, the war criminals were were allowed in uh, knowingly. Um, a lot of the people that I interviewed talked about how they were interviewed in the in the late 40s and early 50s by the RCMP knocking on their door and the RCMP telling them well if you want to stay here you better behave yourself these these people were known their identities were known their names their dates of birth their addresses in Canada um, about a third of them I found just by looking in the phone book these people were so comfortable in Canada they didn't change their names it's not like the nonsense you see in the boys from Brazil movies these people were living openly and unafraid to the, to the right. I, 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 I'm not a Canadian, but I'll say this, to the great disgrace of Canada. Uh, and I am Jewish, so I will say to the greater disgrace of the Jewish community, because I'll say uh, unequivocally, it was the responsibility of the Jewish people to make sure that these people did not escape justice and the ball was dropped. Speaking, um, I'm speaking to Stephen Rambam, he's a private investigator who spent a lot of his career hunting hunting down former Nazis. Just a, a couple of a couple of uh, minutes left here with a fascinating conversation with you, Stephen. I, I take your point about the Canada's record. When we look south of the border here to to your own country, the United States, we just saw uh, a man named Fred uh, Friedrich. Carl Berger, 95 years old, former guard at a Nazi concentration camp, just uh, deported, will be deported to, has been deported to Germany. Um, so many of these are so, so many of these people are so elderly, of course. Like, how many are left? And is it, it's amazing that we still see some deportations even happening today. Your thoughts? There, there's not that many left. There is a tiny percentage of them left for the most part. They've overwhelmingly escaped justice, they've died in their beds. And the problem, the sad and sick and confusing problem right now, is that by going after these, these elderly men who are very effective uh, at, at, you know, changing the narrative and portraying themselves as the victims now, I'm an old man, why are they bothering me? I just want yeah. to die in peace. Uh, they managed to, to change the narrative to where they're the victims, 
yeah. and Americans or Canadians or, or, or whoever trying to achieve some measure of justice, uh, well, we're the bad guys. It's, 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 it's a remarkable and cynical effect. And I will tell you that you've pretty much seen the end of bringing any of these war criminals to justice. Yeah. Because at this point in time, they're so old that even the most inept attorney is going to be able to stall things uh, to where they, they will die in their own bed. They're, they're not going to be deported. There's yeah. certainly not going to be any new cases at this point because, yes, even the, even the youngest one uh, of, these, of these World War II killers is over the age of 90. Right. Stephen Rambam, it's my pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. If you have not had your breakfast yet, you're thinking about what to eat, this next story might help with that decision. Our show contributor, John Jang, now takes us through one of the biggest stories on the Internet right now, and it does involve cinnamon toast crunch cereal. John. Good morning, Mike. Now, I don't know if you're a big breakfast guy, but maybe you'll think twice about a certain cereal brand after hearing about this story. So, Hollywood producer, screenwriter, and comedian Jensen Karp has now gone viral on Twitter over the past couple of days after finding a rather shocking body part in his Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Now, the good news here is that it wasn't a human body part. The bad news is that it was still a body part. Here is that story from CBS News. A man who purchased some Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal from a Woodland Hills Costco found an unpleasant surprise in his breakfast Tuesday. Take a look. Jensen Karp tweeted this picture of shrimp tails. You heard that correctly. Shrimp tails in his cereal. He says upon further investigation, he found, quote, other weird stuff. Gross. The discovery was made while getting his second bowl of cereal, poor guy. Cinnamon Toast Crunch's verified Twitter replied and asked Carp to message its account, but then later sent out a tweet saying, quote, after further investigation with our team that closely examined the image, it appears to be an accumulation of the cinnamon sugar that sometimes can occur when the ingredients aren't thoroughly blended. Carp says the company is being, quote, incredibly weird and also tried to tell him the shapes in this image are not shrimp tails. They really look like shrimp tails. Katie Johnston for CBS LA. This has become such a big story on the internet that it's actually impacted the General Mills share prices. From Tuesday afternoon to Wednesday morning, as this story was really beginning to heat up, General Mills share prices fell by over 5.3%. Strangely, it might actually lead to more sales of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but only because people are now sharing videos on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. It's videos of them opening up their Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal box just to see if there's any shrimp tails or other unsavory items on the inside. Take a listen. You're kidding me. A box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and I think we investigate to see if there's anything strange Oh my God. inside this box. We have a live investigation. Sam, I I'm, think you should do the honors oh, to know that this box is not If there's a snake in here, I'm going to be so with. mad it's at you. It's not a snake. I don't think there's don't, anything don't. else. Don't, don't. I'm going to be so... Is there anything else? I'm going to be so not, mad. Not, I think... Probably pull some wormholes I mean, out of that one. Hey. <laughs> this is the biggest journalism story in your life. Is it no. furry? No. Does it have I don't saliva? I don't know. I'm hoping there's nothing in there. I'm hoping it's just Cinnamon Toast Crunch. 
Ultimately, this could be the greatest example of how not to handle public relations and why companies should think carefully about what their social media teams are doing and who their social media managers are. As of last night, this story has become immortalized as it was featured on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Shrimp tails? That's what an L.A. man says he found inside his box of cinnamon toast crunch. According to reports, the man opened the box and noticed the first shrimp tail, so he looked inside the opened bag and saw another, then pretty much freaked out and closed the box. General Mills has refuted the claim, saying, We assure you that there's no possibility of cross-contamination with shrimp. What's going on? We're making Cinnamon Toast Crunch. We'll help. Great. I do the baking. I shake on cinnamon and sugar. Oops. And I had the shrimp tails. He has issues. I'm talking the poop end of a sea bug. Don't look me in the eyes. Brenda said I was a lousy chef when she left me, but now she'll see. You'll all see. I think it's clear why Brenda left him. What does she know? You haven't lived till you've eaten the exoskeleton of an anthropod in milk. They'll stab you in the back of your throat when you eat them. <laughs> Tastes sad. Like salty garbage. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Take me back, Brenda. From General Mills, the makers of Cheerios. Now with crab claws. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, John Jang joins me now. John, a very comprehensive report. I had a good laugh over that one. Uh yeah, this is quite the story. It's gone viral, as you mentioned, uh, online. I don't know what to make of this thing or, or, or what, the, what the explanation is here, but you ever heard that old line that there's no such thing as bad advertising? I don't know. Maybe this is a, at the end of the day. Maybe it's going to increase Cinnamon Toast Crunch sales. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, people, yeah. they want to investigate uh, by themselves, so they're buying these boxes. General Mills, they don't mind if you buy it for investigative purposes or if you just really enjoy the cereal. So okay. at the end of the day, they're still making money. All right. I think I'll stick to my oatmeal. Right. <laughs> That's a good call. All right. All right. Thank you, John. All right. Welcome back to the show. We all know the BC tourism has taken a pounding during the pandemic, one of the very worst hit sectors. There is hope for the future as the vaccine continues to roll out. But what about cruise ships here? It's such a huge industry, so important to the BC tourism sector. And now there are major concerns here. Check this story out now. A bill just introduced in the U.S. Senate, if it's passed, would allow cruise ships to sail around current laws and bypass British Columbia. Imagine that. All those cruise ships that had been stopping in Vancouver and Victoria, could they skip BC altogether on their way to other ports of call, notably Alaska? Let's discuss now with my guest, Barry Penner, former Attorney General of British Columbia, is now a legal advisor for Cruise Lines International Association, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Barry, thank you for coming on. You're welcome, Mike. Okay, let's talk about the, the current rules for cruise ships right now, because there, there's been this long-standing law in the books in the United States that when these cruise ships are traveling between ports, they're like re- they're like required to stop in Canada effectively right now, correct? Yes, that's something called the Passenger Vessel Services Act. It's actually been on the books in the United States for about a century. Uh, and it was intended to foster domestic uh, passenger vessel construction. And so what it says is if the ship is not built in the United States and it's a foreign-built ship, which almost all cruise ships are, 
then if it's going to carry passengers between two U.S. ports and it's a foreign ship, it has to have a foreign stop in a foreign country somewhere along its itinerary. Right. And so ships going from Seattle to Alaska, for example, right. if they're foreign built, and again, almost all cruise ships are uh, built outside of North America, they, they have to have a foreign stop, and that's where Victoria and or Vancouver or Prince Rupert or Prince uh, Port Alberni or Nanaimo come in as ports of call. Right, and this has been fantastic for our for our industry uh, tourism sector. Like when these big cruise ships pull into Vancouver and these other BC ports, what what's the impact of that when the, when these ships pull in there? Well, uh, until the pandemic hit and cruise lines yeah. voluntarily suspended operations, uh, it was very significant. In 2019, the last full year of cruise ship activity in British Columbia, it gener- generated over 2.7 billion dollars to our BC economy. Wow. And more than 17,000 jobs in British Columbia. Across Canada, the economic impact was over $4.5 billion. And uh, you know, more than 30,000 or approximately 30,000 jobs across Canada. Because, of course, cruise ships also are busy on the East Coast, uh, going up the St. Lawrence into uh, Quebec City, for example. Right. And uh, 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 taking passengers around the maritime provinces. Yeah, I mean, this is just huge. If if BC was to lose that, it'd be terrible for tourism. So now we've got a situation where Canada has banned cruise ships until February of 2022, which uh, really upset the U.S. industry because they, if they're going to be traveling to Alaska, for example, now they're being told you can't stop in Canada uh, until February 2022. So tell me now, Barry, about how some U.S. politicians are saying, like, okay, to hell with Canada then, let's change the law so they can sail directly to Alaska and just skip B.C. altogether. How, how is that working? What is the deal there? Well, for example, in Alaska, uh, tourism is a major component of their economy, and 60% of all the tourists that arrive in Alaska arrive via cruise ships. Wow. So yeah. if, if, if cruise ships are not able to reach Alaska, there goes 60% of their tourism economy for a second year. They've already suffered through last year, and we're hoping to get back to some some activity this year. Right. Um, so, of course, it's devastating if they're not going to have uh, any economic activity in the cruise ship sector for a second year in a row. So that has led to significant pressure on Alaska's politicians to take action. And Senator Murkowski, uh, Lisa Murkowski, um, who's got a pretty high profile in the United States, uh, given her her uh, her role in the U.S. Senate um, has uh, co-authored legislation to provide at least a temporary exemption to the requirement that cruise ships have to stop in a foreign port. Right. In other words, if, if her bill is successful and her colleague Dan Sullivan, uh, another senator of, I've met uh, from Alaska, um, if they're successful and Don Young also, their congressman, uh, then those ships could sail right past Victoria. Wow, And I guess the, the concern in the BC tourism industry, I'll, I'll let them speak for themselves, but my understanding is they're worried that once the cruise ships get used to not stopping in Victoria, yeah. they will continue to to just sail right on by and it may become a, a more permanent change in U.S. legislation. But, yeah, this, um, is, this is really troubling. Like this uh, bill in front of the U.S. Senate, it's called the Alaska Tourism Recovery Act. And if that went through, like you say, uh, it could potentially see cruise ships just skip bc altogether which i think is is very troubling like one of the things that 
I found unusual was when the federal government, the Justin Trudeau government, announced a, a continuing ban on cruise ships, which I think probably a lot of the public would support right now with the the pandemic continuing. But when they said they'd be banned until February of 2022, why did they do that? I mean, that's got to be troubling the Americans, I imagine. Right. Um, so just to be clear, we were anticipating that there would be an extension. The previous order uh, preventing cruise ship stopping in Canada uh, was set to expire in February, and we expected it would be extended uh, a number of additional months. What did catch us by surprise was that instead of being a three-month extension, it was 12 months. Yeah. Um, and that takes it out further than, I think, virtually any other country in the world. And it does seem to contradict the Prime Minister's statement that all Canadians that want a vaccine will have one by September. So if we're all going to be vaccinated by September, um, why the extra prohibition on on the cruise industry in particular uh, for an additional, you know, eight months, uh, taking it all the way out to the end of February 2022? Right, right. That that, that did send a a, a very negative signal because it seemed to be going further than necessary. Well, yeah, now we're seeing the results when you have these uh, high-profile American senators saying, well, you know, to heck with Canada, we'll just we'll skip them and just go straight to Alaska and just change the law, which to me is very troubling. My guest is uh, Barry Penner. Uh, he's an advisor to the cruise ship industry. So, like, right now, though, it, the cruise ship, the cruise industry is basically shut down in North America, right? But what is the, I know there's some news there, right? The, in, the U.S. industry is saying they want to get sailing again? Yes, just a couple of hours ago, the Cruise Lines International Association, which represents about 95% of ocean-going cruise capacity, so basically all the big players, uh, issued a statement calling on the U.S. Center for Disease Control to lift their conditional sailing order, which had basically made it, it's making it almost impossible to restart cruising. They've asked that to be lifted in time to uh, start operations in July. President Biden has said he expects the United States to essentially return to near normal by by Independence Day, the 4th of July. And uh, given the pace of vaccinations in the United States, which today they've announced they're vaccinating more than 2 million people a day, um, it's it's anticipated that much of the U.S. economy will be able to restart and reopen uh, in the next few months. So, so we're, all, we're all hoping for that. We're all hoping for this uh, to be over soon. Uh, one of the things that you know, this troubling situation, if cruise ships were to stop visiting B.C. ports, I think would be devastating. And this came up yesterday in the B.C. legislature with the opposition liberals uh, di- calling on the B.C. government, like, do something about this. Like, this is very, very concerning. What can you talk to? Can you talk about the perspective of the cruise ship industry here? Like, do you want to see action from Canadian governments, the federal government, the B.C. government? We would like to be able to engage in a meaningful way with uh, public health officials, both at the federal and the provincial level. Um, And yes, uh, shipping, of course, falls under federal jurisdiction. But in the discussions we have had with Transport Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada, they point back to British Columbia and the province, uh, saying that the province is indicating they don't want cruise ships at this time. And we understand the concern, of course. We have to fight COVID-19, and the industry fully supports that has hired world-leading experts to design policies to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, But we'd like to have a meaningful discussion about how we can start in a measured way, restart when it's safe to do so. Um, And an interim step would be having what's called technical stops. This would mean a ship could drop anchor for four hours 
and not have anyone come or go from the ship. So no passengers would disembark, no crew would disembark, and nobody on shore would get on the ship. But by being able to drop anchor for four hours in Canadian waters, let's say off Victoria, the ships could meet the technical requirements of that U.S. legislation, the Passenger Vessel Services Act, and continue on then after four hours to Alaska. Right, right. That way, that way you wouldn't have to amend that legislation, and it would head off that concern that any amendment to that act would become permanent and that the ships would permanently bypass Victoria. Okay, so, that's, so that's, that's very that's interesting. That's what we would like. We'd like to start a discussion about yeah. technical stops as an interim measure to see if we can at least get that started. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the cruise line industry. My guest, Barry Penner, Cruise Lines International Association. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Maureen in Richmond. Hey, Maureen. Yes, hi, Mike. Hi. Can you ask your guest, please, because of the Seattle, um, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, re- registered ships wanting to go to Alaska, so therefore, should we not not allow them to come through the inside passage because it's all Canada until we get to Hawaii to Haida Gwaii? Make them go on the outside so they won't see one of the best parts of the whole trip. Okay, Barry, your thoughts? Uh, I think given the no-sale order that's in place uh, by Transport Canada, that may, that may in fact be the effect. Uh, I can't say that definitively. Uh, there are other... Uh, obligations Canada has through international treaties, maritime treaties, to allow safe passage, innocent passage of vessels. Um, So it becomes a bit of a a complicated issue um, because of our international treaty obligations to allow safe passage. Okay. Star 9898 is the number to call in your cell. Mike in New West. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Mike. Yes. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Hello? Mike, I'll give you one more shot here, man. Mike, go ahead. Help. Okay, I don't know what's wrong there. Let's go on to uh, Jackie in Vancouver. Hiya, Jackie. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm totally against the uh, cruise ships coming back uh, so soon. After all, they're like uh, super spreaders. We forget about the Norwalk and what happened to the ships in Japan and also uh, the, the other ships that happened in the summertime or in the uh, springtime. And uh, Mr. Penner mentioned about uh, all Canadians will be vaccinated by September. What about international travelers? We just cannot risk having the pandemic stirring up here again in our province. Yes, Alaska may want to get their economy going, but at what? Our risk? I don't think it's worth it. Thank you for your call. Barry Penner, what do you say to her? Uh, there's quite a bit to say in response to that. Uh, first of all, it's our economy as well. As I said, $2.7 billion to the B.C. economy and more than 17,000 jobs have disappeared uh, since the pandemic just in the cruise sector and industries that support it. But the sciences continue to move forward and actually cruise lines have safely resumed cruising in 10 major markets worldwide in Europe, Asia and South Pacific since the past summer with almost 400,000 passengers sailing to date since last summer in those markets. And uh, by implementing ex- you know, very significant new measures, uh, they've been able to control uh, the issues and the spread of COVID-19 on those ships. And so the science has continued to evolve. In terms of vaccinations, uh, yeah. the United States is ahead of Canada by about 10 times per capita. On a per capita basis, they're vaccinating more than 10 times 
the number of people per day than we are. So they are well ahead of us in terms of being uh, vaccinated. But the, the pace is picking up here in Canada as well. And further, a number of cruise lines have now announced that as a condition of getting on one of their ships to become a passenger, you will have to demonstrate that you've been vaccinated against COVID-19. Mm. Mm. So it may be uh, one of the safer places to be, uh, given that the requirement is that people getting on the ships uh, must be vaccinated. Okay, well, we'll see if that turns out to be the case. We've just got one minute left here. Uh, this industry is so crucial to the local tourism sector, especially in, in Vancouver and Victoria. W- would you say that time is of the essence here with the vaccination rate continuing to go up, the industry lobbying the federal government in the United States to to start sailing again? Like, if Canada doesn't act here, is it possible that we miss out here? we get 30 seconds. Uh, a short answer is yes. We need to start planning for the resumption and have some meaningful discussions. And as I said, a near-term objective would be to facilitate technical stops. Right, right. Uh, where, again, people can't come or go from the ship. But they just drop anchor for four hours. But so far, uh, Transport Canada is saying that that's, that's not on. Uh, mm. And we'd like to start talking about that. Because if the cruise ships resume in July, yeah. uh, sailing out of the United States, there will be significant pressure to bypass Canada. Barry Penner, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you.